1: Good afternoon, my name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at Betofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Susanna Newberry to talk about her book, The Speculative City, Art, Real Estate, and the Making of Global Los Angeles. Susanna is an Associate Professor of Art History at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Susanna, thank you very much for being here and talking with me. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat.
1: So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
0: Absolutely. I am, as you said, a professor of art history, which is a little bit of an uneasy disciplinary setting for me because I work on questions of urbanism, um, art, architecture, And really what motivates me is to understand the extenuating effects of works of art on the world Um, that could intersect with economic geography just as much as it could intersect with talking with an individual artist or student about the meaning of their work. And I enjoy all aspects of that. I publish uh, somewhat frequently about all of those different topics. Uh, And most recently have worked on aspects of video art and television, sort of uh, getting ready for the Internet age, as well as thinking about uh, the visuality of remote conflict coming off of the 20 years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan and the ways in which those visual messages of geography, landscape, action and ethics affect us today, and perhaps how they'll affect us in the future.
1: Great. Definitely a uh, unique perspective on a subject that I think we've kind of heard from, we usually hear from kind of architectural. And while that's definitely there, I think it's great to hear an outside perspective in the Arab world. And so uh, the first question I had was, the the idea of speculation is very prevalent in the book. I mean, it's even in the title. So I was wondering if you could elaborate for us a little more on how that, is, you know, that ties into the overall theme of the book.
0: Speculation, as I write about in the book, is a complicated topic, but one that at least initially has a very straightforward definition, and that definition tends to be financial. Traditionally, speculation refers to the process of investing monetarily in an entity at a low price, expecting that eventually the price will raise and that you will make a significant return on your investment. That seemed appropriate when addressing questions of art specifically, because in the past 20 to 25 years, we've seen a market explosion in the valuation specifically of contemporary art, as well as an increasing tendency for major financial speculators and other work, others working in the financial services industry to purchase art as part of their public portfolio, but also part of their private asset management. The other reasons that I've thought about speculation as this kind of overgirding metaphor for the book have to do with subsequent meanings. Speculation from an architectural or urban studies point of view is also a foundational concept because, in essence, a lot of architecture is speculative in the sense that it begins with a proposal and it goes through several revisions in order to be implemented and socially used. One of the things that I've observed um, in my sort of tangential relationship to academic architecture, of course, is that the emphasis on evaluating architectural creativity and cultural importance, at least at a high or theoretical level, tends to end at implementation. So there is quite a bit of emphasis on the speculative nature of architecture, theorizing how aspects of design or emplacement will potentially affect further uh, design down the road. But I was interested in more of the afterlife of the design process, which is where once you've completed the building, how it becomes part of the political economy of a city, causing subsequent change to happen. The last way in which speculation um, sort of fits into my purview as an art historian is that speculation is a word defined in relationship to seeing. And traditionally in art history, seeing and observation are critical methods for evaluating art's uh, uh, creation, art's purpose, and also the way in which spectators receive messages from art and use it to uh, influence or affect their own lives. When we look at the dictionary definition of speculation, um, it is sort of intensely tied to the psychological process of observing something thinking about it, and then forecasting a meaning, which may or may not be concrete or actual, but is something that happens through interpretation through the body of an individual person. And when I think about art history as a discipline, this is how I think about it. We look at things, we write things down, we analyze them, but there is a kind of magic in interpretation and there's a gap between itemizing the concrete things that you see or notice and then realizing what they mean to you as a person or to society as a whole. So on those three different levels, speculation is an operative framework of this book. It talks about the financial side, it talks a little bit about architectural process, but it also provides hopefully a deep theory of what art historians do and the way in which the public at large can think about the meaning of art in their lives as a predictive force that may have future return.
1: Very interesting. I, and thank you. I think that's a great uh, synopsis of the book as a whole. And so you mentioned the idea of kind of observing something and interpreting it after it's built. And so I know particularly the first three chapters, each focus on a photographer, an artist, I know that I personally wasn't familiar with. And each seemed to have this common theme of observing and documenting, I don't have a pro- a, a subject matter that people probably wouldn't have cared about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. You know, I guess we'll start right in the first chapter. You, you know, you, The uh, the gentleman, I believe, it's, is it pronounced Rushka?
0: Ed Ruscha. It's a complicated word, but it's uh, <laughs> Ruscha,
1: yeah. <laughs> Ruscha. And so, uh, you know, he had a series of just parking lots.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so and to me, that's interesting. And uh, I want to come back to a book that it makes me think of. But I was wondering if you could explain to us kind of the importance of maybe just him or all the three artists I'm talking about, this idea of documenting something that other people probably didn't think needed to be document.
0: Yeah, it was especially a mid-20th century phenomenon, at least in the fine arts world. And within art history, we tend to correlate it to pop art, which has some um, sort of similarities within the world of architecture, but is more firmly based in the idea of the cultural or visual or everyday environment. So uh, at the time in the mid-20th century, we have people adjacent to architecture like J.B. Jackson, commenting on the vernacular nature of most American landscapes beyond natural landscapes and saying, essentially, that individuals make meaning through their daily social encounters with their surroundings, which shouldn't necessarily be limited to the natural world or the social world. Instead, they suggested that the visual treatment of, for example, A sign on a corner store or the way that you arrange um, your wreaths and your garden gnomes and your plants in your front yard has a significant psychological impact on individual people but also can be interpreted in order to understand the social and community values that individuals hold in their public presentation of self through signage, through ornament, and through other um, everyday features. Uh, Rouche himself was an arc- was an artist from Oklahoma who moved to Los Angeles for schooling. He trained as a commercial artist in one of Los Angeles's art schools at the time, and then embarked on a career as a painter and photographer who focused on representing the look of the pop commercial world. So, a world of gas stations and car design and um, really anything that falls below critical scrutiny, but is part of that popular experience of everyday life. He's also living in Los Angeles during a time of significant change due to suburbanization, redlining, and other practices that have significant impacts for the look of the city in which he lives. And so he does turn his attention to his immediate circumstances, trying in some way to interpret or represent what he sees um, and pre- present it in the world of fine art, which then triggers these art historical processes of seeing, reflecting, analyzing, and internalizing.
1: And so, and so the, the book I previously hinted at, you know anyone who's gone through architecture school is familiar with Jane Jacobs. and so you bring up the idea that the city is defined more about social interactions versus you know planning or the built environment. And so you even bring up her book in this, And so uh, one concept I I was very interested in and would love to hear more about is uh, the idea that LA is a city that's somewhat unique, and I'm actually quoting you, (laughs) that that it's more about uh, overlapping infrastructures and that its uh, mobility kind of outweighs the idea of monumentality, whereas most cities, there's monuments and landmarks, whereas in LA, you make the case that that's not the case.
0: Yeah, that's true. And so to bring it back to Jacobs, of course, one of the things that Jacobs is famous for is talking about um, urbanism as a social dynamic. So the ballet of people on the street, the formation of community based on uh, public seeing. When we think about LA, I think in general, even today, we don't think of it as an intimate city. We don't think of it as one um, in which there's great social mobility or interaction. In fact, we think of LA as a place that exports an image that's thought of as um, both uh, homogenous and hegemonic to the world of perfection. And what I think is interesting about being in Los Angeles is that within individual communities, you do have the Jacobsian sense of personal interaction, community care, and placemaking. However, the way that different communities share that knowledge with each other outside of the individual unit of the neighborhood is through essentially transit infrastructure. So what's one thing that everyone in L.A. does? Most people most people drive a car and park. Most people have an experience of driving on a freeway as an intensely personal experience, but also one that's shared with a collective. And furthermore, the scale of Los Angeles, as we know, is not the same scale as the 18th or 19th century uh, scale of, uh, of New York City. Um, and so I kind of propose that there are different ways to understand community and belonging outside of that interpersonal interaction that Jacobs suggests. And probably most students of architecture are also familiar with uh, Denise Scott Brown, Robert Venturi, and Steven Eisenhower's book, Learning from Las Vegas. Um, And in my interpretation, learning from Las Vegas is actually not so different from, for example, the death and life of great American cities, because it proposes that there is a social personal basis for interaction with the overlooked that falls below critical scrutiny, but nonetheless is extremely important in generating a sense of common belonging.
1: And it's interesting that you bring up Learning from Las Vegas, as you said, another book that any architecture student is probably very familiar with. And so it's interesting because when you're describing the format of uh, Matt Ruscha's Rouche's book, Rusht, as fine. well as Don't the worry. other two artists that we'll have to get into more, Bob Balz and Leavitt. The, the idea of documenting something somewhat mundane, but then having a more social significance to it. The, the first book I thought of was Learning from Las Vegas, which in my mind follows a very similar format, but just seems to have
0: been much more popular. Yeah. Actually, um, when the Venturis came out West, um, especially to do prep work for their trip to Las Vegas and also prep work for the studio that they taught at the Yale School of Architecture in the 1960s, they met with Ruchet. They knew of him. They knew of his work. They found his method and aesthetic um, quite inspirational. Uh, They also drove with Ruscha throughout L.A. making home movies and photographs. Um, And so Ruscha is actually very central in both the aesthetic and philosophy of learning from Las Vegas. But the book that you're specifically referring to that I write about in my book by Ruscha is called 34 Parking Lots. And it was one of a series of small printed books that Ruscha made throughout the 60s that was structured around individual black and white photographs that seem almost like snapshots that create typologies of what is the subject that's announced on the cover. So the first one was called Every Building on the Sunset Strip. The second one was called 26 Gasoline Stations. And so you kind of get the pattern. By the time we get to 34 parking lots, Ruchet has refined this um, equation, and he knows exactly what kind of photographs to take and how to lay them out in a book with otherwise blank pages to create a kind of uh, visual pause as you move through pictures. He's also hired a helicopter pilot and an aerial photographer to take the photographs for him. And the result of these photographs are aerial photographs of parking lots, mostly throughout the newly suburban San Fernando Valley shot on a Sunday morning, which back in the 60s was a time when most people were not shopping and most stores were closed. And the reason he chose this time to photograph is that he was interested, much like Denise Scott Brown, in social evidence left on infrastructure of the role of planning um, in the built environment. So he's specifically going to take photographs of oil droppings left by cars at that point in time when parked, which would leave extensive kind of soft stains on the asphalt. Um, And of course, Scott Brown and others were responsible for another little article around the same time, um, the significance of parking lots. Um, And so there's a a definite conversation between those two entities. Scott Brown, I think is a little more critically invested from her own experience uh, as a child in South Africa, thinking about social justice, and the way in which ordinary subjects deserve attention as much as extraordinary subjects, Rusche, um is perhaps more interested in the kind of pop psychology of the commercial world, but they intersect on that subject matter.
1: And so you had mentioned, uh, you know, her focus on the normal as opposed to the extraordinary. And so in my mind, kind of, draw it draws a parallel to one of the other photographers that you profile. Uh, is it pronounced Balz. <laughs> Yeah, Lewis you, you know In the, in the book, uh, it mentions that, uh, you know, he, I think he has a quote that he didn't grow up near Yosemite Park, so he had to photograph shopping mm-hmm. malls, etc. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I was wondering if you could elaborate on his significance and how he ties into the book a little more.
0: Sure. Well, in terms of looking at this book through photographers, there's a certain through line that comes from Ruchet, but we could also trace back to Walker Evans or even some of the earliest 19th century photography in France, France, which was a systematic uh, inventory of medieval buildings in France. Um, This kind of architectural deadpan photography has uh, a century of tradition, and at this point in time, artists are interested in what they think of as a non judgmental look and capturing of their physical environment as a way to create a mirror for the viewer to project their own thoughts rather than to be told what the meaning of the structure is. Baltz grows up in Orange County, which during his youth is a rural agricultural region. And throughout high school, college um, and postgraduate studies is a landscape that's changing very rapidly as it becomes an epitome of suburban sprawl. I think for Baltz, there's a little bit of that reactive chip on the shoulder that some people have where they are told uh, what is valuable and what is valuable is a high concept or high art such as Ansel Adams' photography of the American West, um, and instead say, you know, I'm going to toss that out. Your importance doesn't matter to me. Let me focus on what I know. Um, So Balz learns from Bruchet specifically in thinking about an even and consistent structure to document um, essentially construction sites in Orange County as it's being built. And he does so by taking very precise black and white photographs of the most mundane structures possible, which are tilt-up warehouses. Prefab, they come out of World War II, engineering and innovation, and suddenly they are all over Orange County replacing fields with industrial parks. Similarly to the parking lots, one of the reasons I became interested in Baltz's focus on industrial parks as a subject is that they are structures that many of us are unfamiliar with um, unless we work in one or live near one. But even if we work in one or live near one, we're not entirely sure what's going on because a tilt-up warehouse is a giant box that you walk into. It doesn't have a lot of ornamentation, it's not purpose-built, and its program is pretty generic. Um, And there's a disconnect in the concept of the industrial park or the campus between what we were talking about earlier with Jacobs and the idea of a socially dynamic built environment, which is in a campus or industrial park setting, you enclose all of the work being done. You essentially draw the curtain on social interaction. What's important is that you make a product and then you ship it to the next stage in its assembly or development. And I thought that was an interesting Metaphor for Orange County, this kind of strange place where things are being produced, but not a lot of attention is being given to who lives there, how it works, and what it looks like. And Baltz's visual insistence on treating that landscape as a very precise, formal play of, for example, rectangles and textures of ground, um, uh, the difference between uh, the sort of neutral gray sky and the dark asphalt. In Baltz's work, these industrial parks become vivid in their tonality and their shape. And you begin to look at them almost like they are abstract paintings. Just to tie it sort of um, back a little bit further, from an art historical perspective, when we think about abstraction, so a non-signifying way of making visual material, we think of it as exactly a kind of prompt for further personal speculation. My favorite illustration in the whole book is a little political cartoon from an Orange County uh, magazine of two guys in suits wearing glasses standing at what we take to be an art opening. And they're looking on the wall at a painting, which is a black background, and then a series of thick white lines going over it. And the caption is, we're working on something like this at Aero Neutronic. The reason it's my favorite is that it takes the kind of emerging professional class of Orange County, people who work in aerospace and defense parts. It combines it with something that was in common cultural currency at the time. This idea that abstract art is meaningless unless it signifies something to the viewer. And it allows the reader to find a connection between a work of art that doesn't tell you what it is and an industry that's just emerging. And the reason I like that is the physical envelope of Orange County and particularly Irvine, California at the time is precisely that it exists. But it is abstract because it doesn't tell you what it means, either on its surface or in terms of what happens inside of those buildings, because they immediately go elsewhere to be assembled.
1: Uh, so uh, thank you for that. And so I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to make this less of a vague question, but I know personally as an architect, the one cha- the, uh, the chapters are great. The chapter that stuck out for me, though, is you have a very in-depth profile of Frank Gehry and his background with the artist community. And I guess I can't speak for every architect. Most um, I would think almost every architect is familiar with Frank Gehry. I don't think many are familiar with this background he has with the art community, as well as kind of these earlier works none of them in the book look like anything you would associate with Frank Gary. And so to make that less of a vague statement, the question I have is, uh, you know, Frank Gary, I'm sure there were other architects that were working in Los Angeles. And so what, what makes Frank Gary's ties with the community important for the theme of this book?
0: Sure. Well, your listeners are probably familiar with Gary's more recent work. So made since around 1990, these, um, somewhat bombastic, sculptural, titanium-clad buildings that seem to defy physics and logic. Um, That's the more recent work. But just like every person, Gary has a backstory. And so the work that I start talking about in the chapter called The Artist's Museum um, is work that is derived from a couple of different precedents, Los Angeles in the 20s and 30s became home to a number of avant-garde European architects seeking refuge from the rise of the Nazi regime. Uh, People like Rudolf Schindler, Richard Neutra, and others relocate to Los Angeles and begin experimenting with socially engaged works that are meant to be simple in design efficient in use, but also low cost in order to support the radical idea that form follows function and what you really need to do is to provide space for interactions of people without putting too much emphasis on the outward decoration or look of a building. You combine that with the World War II and post-World War II repositioning of the LA economy uh, from manufacturing into aerospace and some of the um, innovations that came with that, like the invention of tilt-up architecture which itself is a product of uh, the, uh, the Bauhaus in Germany and created by a lot of those emigre architects. And what you have with a rapidly expanding economy is Los Angeles in the 50s, which is essentially a collection of, in the famous song, little boxes on a hillside, prefab structures that carry no external significance. Gary trains early on in his career at USC with an architect named Victor Gruen, also coming out of that European Bauhaus tradition, who would go on to be the developer of early malls and other kinds of commercial infrastructure in L.A. And so he's coming out of a place where he's thinking a lot about fluidity of program, uh, specificity of use, but really how to create a flexible interior to allow for change over time. As he's doing that, he's taken a bunch of ceramics courses in the art department, and he begins to fall in, as you said, with an emerging social group of artists all really interested in pop vernacular, which fits his training. Among his earliest commissions are homes and studios for those artists. And of course, a studio is a purpose-built structure that needs to be flexible on the inside to scale up or down to whatever the artist wants to make inside. And through his conversations with artists who are essentially, in a way, construction workers on a different scale, he focuses on their use of raw materials rather than their end product of a finished work. And he takes inspiration from that, beginning to adopt a vocabulary of basic raw materials. So two by fours and plywood and poured concrete. And he begins to write his own architectural story based on exposure of raw materials and an ordinary look on the outside to blend into the street level built environment, but also to downplay the significance of outward appearance versus internal function. We can kind of think of that as similar to Ruscha's focus on parking lots. Parking lots, they are an equation, it's really simple. You paint these stripes and they go around the building and that's how you do it. Gary's earliest work um, literally exposes some of those uh, construction mechanisms. So instead of finishing off all the walls inside of a studio, he will leave the uh, two by fours as struts. He doesn't cover plywood. He doesn't cover up ductwork. He begins to see the artist' studio and artist dwelling as akin to the internal structure of the artist's mind with all kinds of structure and influence left exposed. And that's really where he gets his first traction as an individual architect moving on from the Gruen apparatus. And it becomes his signature, as I talk about in the book, over the next couple of decades, as he continues to work specifically with artists and cultural institutions to become what he thinks of and what others think of as an artistic architect, someone not necessarily obsessed with function, but who chooses materials that can be deeply interpretive. Um, And so by the time he gets bigger commissions, for example, for the the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, he has honed this aesthetic, this kind of rough aesthetic of things in process. He has constructed an oeuvre that sees that visual significance as... um, symbolic of what is artistic, unfinished materials that are open to interpretation. And he even goes so far to renovate his own uh, early 20th century Dutch colonial house in Santa Monica in the same way with an exposed lathing and uh, chain link fence um, and all of these kinds of visual signatures that later architectural historians and theorists will remark upon as postmodern laying bare the tools by which something is made instead of finishing on, uh, focusing on the finished formal product. Uh,
1: like, like I said, very uh, very interesting to see that side. I don't think a lot of us see. So now our, all of our architectural trivia is a little, little more deep now.
0: <laughs> well, we all start somewhere. And I think what um, is fascinating about focusing on Gary's early work Um, is that, as I said before, the image we're used to is of exterior bombast. Um, And yet one of the ways in which he comes to sculpturalism is by very carefully calibrating, studying, and aligning himself with sculptors and artists at the time. And of course, everyone's personal style changes. Um, And I think it's part perhaps of a generational shift from 36,000 feet towards the idea of Um, The external appearance being everything that matters, the sign being the most important, the performance of self being more important than the internal workings of how you get there.
1: Absolutely. And so, of course, you know, there's much more we could cover. But And I say this all the time, but I hate to keep you here all day. But uh, one question that I'm curious about is, you know, since the book has been published, what have you been working on and what projects have occupied your time?
0: Um, A number of them, actually. I mean, as, as your listeners will know, your professors are always busy and art historians are no exception. And sometimes when you're working on your own scholarship or creative projects, they overlap. So one of the things that became important to me as I finished up the book was really emphasizing that point I made earlier about the agency or effect that works of art have in the world. And I became particularly interested in this because of a now historical event, the 2008 credit crisis, the Great Recession, and all of those economic paroxysms moving forward. So I think about that time, the 2000s and 2010s, as a historical period that we're just beginning to understand. One of the projects that I began while the book was still in publication was a look at the effect of seeing the world intimately from afar, which is also kind of a metaphor for thinking about these ordinary built environments. In 2011, I was at the Venice Biennale, which is a famous uh, exhibition every two years of contemporary art that happens in Venice, Italy. And I was struck by a particular video by the Israeli artist, Omer Faust. It was a three-channel video, meaning that three different uh, sinks of a visual product were being shown at the same time on three different screens. So there's a little bit of architecture in that. And the video was um, uh, of uh, images of drone warfare and the lead-up to remote aerial combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. The audio was of a former drone operator speaking, either... Uh, straightforwardly or somewhat conspiratorially to an interviewer about what it was like to sit in a dark place, in essence, in the middle of the Nevada desert, which is where a lot of that unmanned aerial combat took place. And almost as if in a video game, plan um, somewhat significant destruction thousands of miles away. Um, And so what I've been working on lately is a second book, that looks at that video from a domestic point of view. It takes, similar to my first book, some of the quieter underlying themes that are apparent in the visual world and makes them the focus. In this case, one of the underlying facts of the video um, is that the video not only features someone who lives in Las Vegas, it shoots all of the scenes in the deserts surrounding Las Vegas in Nevada and California as replacements or reenactments for uh, the Middle East. I'm interested in that partially because of the way it shows stalled developments at the edges of cities as a result of the 2008 crisis and recession. And so in thinking about this video and writing this book, I'm continuing my work on overlooked commercial landscapes. And I'm now adding a new dimension. Instead of doing a very deep dive on the historical past, I want to break open the more recent past and show how you can connect something like a 20-year-old enlisted person at an Air Force base to remote conflict thousands of miles away, bring it back to the way a city grows and develops around that military industrial infrastructure, and to rethink how we calibrate the the difference between the local and the global or the close up and the far away. Um, Because of course we know that even if we're not present at the moment of ethical conflict, we may still be connected to it in some way. So by looking at that through uh, construction history, reevaluating the significance of Las Vegas as a city in the 21st century, and bringing in um, some media studies applications about um, virtual reality and now, of course, remote encounters, which we're so familiar with. Um, I am hoping to create a different context for how we think about our cities and place in a global perspective.
1: Maybe we can uh, talk about that somewhat in the future.
0: I would love that. And just for reference, the Foss video is called 5,000 Feet is the Best. And the phrase is taken from um, an actual drone operator's testimony that a 5,000-foot uh, altitude is the exact and precise altitude by which you can effectively strike a target on Earth. Um, and so that's that's the work.
1: Right. Well, like I said, perhaps we could talk about that when that's finished.
0: I would love to. I want to
1: thank you again for being on the show and talking with me today.
0: Thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure.
1: A pleasure all mine. And for our listeners, the book is The Speculative City, Art, Real Estate, and the Making of Global Los Angeles. Thank you for listening and have a great day.